Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. The rules have changed. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, March 21st, 2008. This week, episode 74 comes to you from beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Huser, Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Good afternoon. Always a pleasure, Joe. Great to be back together here, Cliff. And the wingman, Chris Boisel. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. That gives me goosebumps sometimes. I also want to uh, welcome back our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, who's back this week. Let's see if we can unmute Dietrich. Oh. Got to unmute him. Oh. There we go. Hello, Dietrich. Are you with us? Well, I heard my cue, uh, <laughs> Beethoven, uh, that is all right. Yes, indeed, I'm back in Pittsburgh. Good to have and you. And available. Sometimes that happens that I have something to do. Uh, and well, you're feeling farfignugan uh, this afternoon. <laughs> Whatever that word. We're trying to figure out what that word was they made up. but uh, It was farfignugan. Okay. Um, welcome back, Dieter. I understand last week you were doing a little uh, experimentation with particle sizing and... Uh, that's a little little rough to do, isn't it? Uh, well, I've been doing that for, my God, that goes on 40 years almost. <laughs> it's hard to believe. But I have been generating and measuring particles and particle sizes and the aerodynamic equivalent diameter. And uh, I looked at them in round and square and irregular shapes and fibers and all of the above. And... Uh, even though I'm kind of away from it ever since I left the university, but um, uh, it comes back <laughs> if comes. I think about it. How did your experiment go? Um, all right, uh, it's, um, you, know, you always learn something. That is the beauty of it. And it could have gone better, but that was the first go around. And we look at the preliminary data and we shall refine uh, our methodologies. And the next time it's going to be better, it's no doubt about it. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. We'll bring you back in a little bit. Sure. Okay. All right. Today's segments include the microband trivia quiz. The uh, Tom Yacobellis is here from Ducts, and he's also the IAQA president. We've got the IE Connections, What's News with Glenn Fellman, and then we'll bring everybody back for the roundtable. I believe we have the commission on the line as well. Pete Consigli is going to join us at least for the roundtable, if not sooner jump in and ask a few questions. The IAQ console credits are available by emailing me at joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com. 
You can get those right after the show. I'll send you a quiz. We have a few people now getting them right after the show. A good way to keep up with your renewal credits. Let's go to thank our sponsors. First, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. All right. To contact the show, you go to the TalkShoe, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E.com website, follow the directions, get your PIN number, or you can go to our www.iaqradio.com website and uh, go to the show link send you right over to the show there's also the widgets we send out with the invitations now they're making it a little easier to contact the show or you can contact us at my email I gave earlier or cliff at cliff zlotnik that's z-l-o-t-n-i-k at unsmoke.com and don't forget to answer those trivia questions on the trivia link at iaqradio.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. I'm going to turn it over to Cliff for the microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Congratulations go out to Eric Bozel from Washington State who correctly answered question number 61. Uh, I'll, repeat, I'll repeat the question and the answer. What does the common name for a building caretaker, a month of the year, a modern financial fund, and an ancient Roman god have in common? Janus, J-A-N-U-S, is Latin. In Latin means gatekeeper. Janus is depicted as having two faces. Uh, a month of the year, January, is named after him, a financial fund. Janus is named after him uh, as well. Uh, Joe put out a trivia challenge to anyone that could get three, and unfortunately, uh, no one got three. So th that challenge is still going to be in play. The microband trivia question for Friday, March 21st, 2008, is a two-part question. Chris, the envelope, please. First part of the question is, what is house dust? The second part of the question, where does house dust come from? Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. Yeah, go back to the IAQ radio website. We're only taking answers on the website now. Go to the trivia link and uh, answer. I guess we've got six again. We had five unanswered. Right. Now we're back to six with today's. I'm still offering that cold, hard cash for three correct answers. And we have a prize for each correct answer, Absolutely. so something will be going out to Absolutely. Eric Bozel. Eric, uh, thanks for participating. First guest today, our only guest today, is Tom Yacobellis. Tom is the Senior Vice President for Ducts International. He's also the President of the Indoor Air Quality Association. Tom founded and ran Duckbusters franchises for over 10 years prior to their merger with Ducts. Not long ago, Ducts was acquired by restoration giant Belfort International. Tom is currently the senior vice president at Ducts. He designs all their training programs for the Ducts franchise network. 
He has also been very actively involved in their national response team, working on large disaster restoration projects with hundreds of employees and subcontractors under his direction. Tom has a long history of volunteering his time and is the current president of the Indoor Air Quality Association. He also has a long history of volunteer work, having served on boards and committees at, and I might get the acronym police on me here, the NADCA board, and uh, he's also worked on committees at NADCA. He's been uh, working with ACA, the Air Conditioning Contractors of America, I believe that would be, ASHRAE, the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers, and he worked on the IICRC committees, Institute of Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification. Whew, got it all. All right, welcome, Tom. Are you with us? We've got. Hello, Tom. I swear I heard your voice on that uh, on that little music bit we did. Yeah, it sounds fantastic to me. I love the bumping music. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome, Tom. We had you on way back uh, for part of the show, and we really appreciate you coming back. And uh, look forward to talking to you a little bit here today. Well, I believe I was originally on show number two, and I said to myself, I hope I make it back before show 75. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you beat the, beat the gun, uh, beat the uh, finish line there. <laughs> Tom, it's great to have you back. And I, I was reading an article in Indoor Environment Connections. And, um, of course, we'll have a segment from Glenn in a little bit. In that interview, while they were interviewing you, you were driving across the country with a truck full of equipment, headed out to do some work on uh, smoke-damaged buildings after the Southern California wildfires. And in that article, it said that 22 years ago, you rode a bicycle across the country in 90 days. I'm just curious, did you have any flashbacks during your truck trip? I certainly did. Uh, <laughs> it, it did take us 90 days. My wife and I rode our bicycles across the United States, which was a tremendous trip. Um, my biggest flashback came when we were in Texas because it took practically a day to get across Texas in a truck, but it took us almost two weeks to get across on the bicycle. Wow. That's, that's interesting, Tom. And I'm curious, I understand a little bit about your background. I'm not sure if all of our listeners do. How did you get into the HVAC business to start with, and how did you get a break to take 90 days off, and were you in it at that time? Yeah, I've always been in the business. My I'm born and raised in an air conditioning family. Uh, brother, my brothers do the same business as I do. Uh, my dad was in the business, so for, right from a small pop, was, I started doing the business uh, over the summer times and after school. Mm -hmm. I eventually moved to Florida, and there was a transitionary period in my life where I was moving from one company to another, uh, which was uh, going from commercial cleaning equipment uh, into specifically into uh, HVAC uh, restoration and starting the company. And before we did that, we decided, hey, you know, it might be a good idea to really do one of these life experiences. So we just took the time off. And at that point, when we were doing the transition and we went across the country. Great. Uh, you were from the Bronx originally, is that correct? Originally, I'm from, I'm from New York. Uh, I'm born in uh, Queens. 
Queens. Moved out to Long Island and then worked in Manhattan for several years and then moved to, to Florida when I was 25. So you got some real hands-on uh, experience, huh? Yes. Uh, and that, now, what made you decide to go from, I assume you were in the installation and maintenance of HVAC, HVAC, as you call them, systems. What made you decide to get into the cleaning and restoration of them? Two things, really. Um, I'm, you know, I basically somewhat have an obsessive cleaning issue, uh, which helps you when you're in this business. But when I moved from Florida to, uh, excuse me, from New York to Florida, I found that I started having a tremendous problem working on mechanical systems. I had never had an issue before, although I had severe uh, allergies when I lived up north. My allergies disappeared. Different types of pollen disappeared when I moved to Florida. However, when I was working on mechanical systems, I started, uh, I started having asthma attacks while I was working on the air conditioning systems. And in talking to other technicians at the time, I'm, uh, it was just a technical person working for a company at that time, I discovered that other people weren't having those issues. And I was trying to find out, well, what was, why is it when I was working on the mechanical systems that I kept having uh, asthma attacks? And it ended up being that the type, the, the amount of runtime, the amount of moist mold and contaminants uh, and, and biologicals that build up inside mechanical systems in the south is just completely different than up north. And so I found myself in the unusual position of being in a trade that I almost couldn't work in. Hmm. Uh, my, pretty much dedicated, my life is pretty much dedicated to the business. Never had any intentions of doing anything else. And so we had to start thinking about in terms of, well, if at least I'm affected, I know that other people with this type of thing must be affected as well. There must be a small market out there. And believe me, when I say small, I mean very small. Uh, back 22 years ago, maybe there's a small market out there of people who might need this done so that they can feel better. Now, Tom, what do you suggest we call what you do? And why? I mean, I've heard it called, you know, duct cleaning and HVAC systems cleaning. And I think recently you told me that maybe we should change the way we talk about this. Well, I think um, NADCA has probably said it the loudest. They just had their annual meeting a few weeks ago. And even though they have been called for since their inception, the National Air Cleaners Association, they're just going to use the NADCA acronym right now not as an acronym, but as a name, and they're actually calling themselves the HVAC Restoration of HVAC Restorers. Uh, the, the business that we're in is restoring a mechanical system back to the best possible operating condition. And so both on the new standards for the Air Conditioning Contractors Association and the standard for NADCA, we essentially have been pushing the concept of referring to this as HVAC Restoration. HVAC meaning HVAC or air conditioning systems, air conditioning and heating systems. Let's talk a little bit about the contaminant. Why does dust and other dry particulate adhere to the interior of HVAC systems, Tom? Well, the same reasons why it adheres to a dining room table or your furniture in your house, but the, the reason why it adheres can be, can be varied. Um, there was a study done years ago in Japan about how dust accumulates inside a mechanical system. And, of course, the first thing that dust has to do in a mechanical system is it has to adhere to the surface and overcome the airflow that is being pushed through the duct system. 
much like dust can accumulate on a fan or a ceiling fan, uh, dust can accumulate inside mechanical systems and build up. Um, the other way dust accumulates is because ductwork itself, metal ductwork, has natural oils on them when it's manufactured to, perfect the, to, per, to protect the galvanized metals. And so uh, there's an adherence factor of dust sticking to the inside. High humidity causes dust to weigh more and essentially causes dust to drop out of suspension or out of the airflow as it's getting into the mechanical system. But the most common reason why dust really accumulates inside mechanical systems is because dust enters in through usually a fairly short return duct, then is run through the fan, and it never makes it back out of the system because of the pressure drops in the system. So if a piece of dust is carried down 100 feet a main trunk line and all of a sudden has to slow down to pass through some sort of control device, uh, such as a VAV box or any type of control device, the, the dust has a tendency to drop out of suspension as the airflow reduces in speed. Does static electricity have anything to do with it? It does. Um, in this Japanese study, they showed the, a process called agromulation which shows that particles will attach to each other through static electricity until they reach about 300 microns in size. Then generally, the airflow that's behind the system will have a tendency to break them loose when they get large enough that the airflow can overcome the static electricity connection. You know, can you tell us a little bit about U.S. patent number 5186759? I understand you know a little bit about that patent. Yeah, that's a patent that we created many years ago uh, because we were having problems with the fiberglass insulation inside air handlers. The patent primarily focused on the air handling units of residential homes. What we had found was that the products placed inside the units were, were not uh, of the highest quality. They were fraying loose on a regular basis, and they were actually, the particles themselves were actually contaminating the duct system. So we created a patent of lining the inside of a mechanical system with a metallic liner that did two things. It actually prevented the liner itself from uh, retaining water, which is usually in high quantities inside an air handling unit. And secondly, the aluminum acted as a natural antimicrobial uh, and slowed the, ra the rate of growth and the extent of growth inside the mechanical system. And the third thing it did is it made the system very cleanable for the future. So it was very well accepted by, by people who had true allergies and respiratory problems and had systems with mold in them. Tom, we've got a couple other technical questions, but I want to kind of set them up with uh, fast forward from your trip you were doing to... Um Southern California working on the wildfires and let's fast forward to the Monte Carlo project where you had an actual you know building fire and uh, what was different about that project compared to the Southern California wildfire projects we had Greg Long on a while back talking about what you did in Southern Cal I'm curious what was different when the fire was in the building as opposed to you know the wildfires well, one of the big things is the, the, the response and the quality of people that you have to bring to the product project like that has to be extremely rapid. Usually on a fire of these types, especially in something like a casino that's actively operating, 
the folks want that building back online as soon as possible. So it's one of these the issues that we've been working on for many, many years, and frankly, the reason why I started actually franchising the company originally and why we're expanding so much now is to be able to find 70 or 80 competent people who actually are on a regular basis cleaning and restoring mechanical systems uh, to respond in 24 hours is virtually impossible. Uh, you'd, be have to, you'd have to be calling companies from all around the country and arranging the strategy for pulling it together. So one of the things that, that's different is the rate and the time that we, we respond to the projects. The second thing is, is that we have to have people who have a higher level of competency because we are dismantling the mechanical units. In, in the Monte Carlo project, for example, there was actually um, in the rooms, there were very short runs of ductwork, maybe only 10 feet maximum. But a lot of the work concentrated on dismantling, removing the blowers from the air conditioning units, uh, uh, disconnecting the electrical lines, cleaning them, putting everything back together again. So level of competency was increased as well. And then also from a strategic standpoint, uh, uh, it, these larger projects, they really do require a specialized management uh, because you have to be able to rapidly produce uh, workload uh, production schedules and and adhere to them so that you can meet the timelines and the criteria of the projects. Tom, how did you realize that these systems were contaminated and needed to be cleaned? You know, commonly in a disaster restoration project, we walk in, we look up at the ceiling, we look at the diffusers, we see a lot of uh, soiling on the diffusers and soiling on the ceiling around those diffusers. Um, you know, is, is that an accurate way of judging levels of contamination in the system? It is. It's one of the methods that we use. It's, as you know, and Cliff, you know more about this than anybody, but there's also methods of sampling for chloride effects uh, of soot-related particles inside mechanical systems and a, a method of creating a map, uh, a map of the building that actually can uh, take a look at through visual assessments and analytical assessments of the affected range of the, the smoke and soot throughout the system. Uh, in this particular case, uh, th this was already dictated to us when we went on, on the job site through the restoration consultant that was on the job site. So we were reacting to what we, uh, what we thought would, uh, the workload would be. In, in an assessment that we're making on our own, we would do very thorough visual inspections combined with analytical testing. Tom, what, what's the major difference in cleaning up smoke-damaged ductwork or HVAC components as opposed to just your typical going in to clean uh, because, you know, it's accumulated dust and dirt over the years? I think the, the primary thing, the primary issue that's very different is what happens to a soot particle when you touch it. <laughs> Pardon me. You know, when you have a dust particle and you touch a dust particle with any contact pressure, uh, it tends to be fairly resi resilient, and you can capture that dust particle. But a soot particle has a tendency to break down sometimes, almost into an ink-like staining that, it, that, for, that complicates the cleaning issue. And so many of the techniques that we would normally use uh, that allows us to agitate particles out of the duct system just simply can't be used 
and a general scope for uh, cleaning fire and soot restoration. Now, where we uh, have been a recent entry into this market with respect to uh, fire-related uh, duct cleaning, I'd say we've only been doing it now in earnest for about three to four years. Uh, but one of the things that we've noticed is that the industry is just lacking uh, in, in uh, guidelines with respect, specifically with respect to duct work and how to remove some of these particles. So we're actually in the process now of gathering a lot of data to help the industry set some guidelines and practices that will be universally accepted. You know, Tom, what methods have you found most effective for removing fire-related smoke odors from the insides of HVAC systems? Well, first of all, it depends on what type of ductwork that we're cleaning. Uh, of course, the best method on metallic ductwork would be, uh, and this isn't always possible, but the best method is to take it out and wash it as long as you don't destroy the original oils that are used to protect the galvanized metal ductwork. So metal ductwork is, is fairly straightforward. That's, that's the best practice you could possibly do. And then there are lots of different products that are out there available for deodorizing the mechanical system that we have found are very effective. Uh, uh, as you know, on these projects, uh, we're, generally we're acting as a subcontractor on many of these projects, so sometimes we have to do what this protocol of the environmental consultant is telling us to do. On fiberglass ductwork, though, on, or any porous surfaces, the, the issue becomes really more complicated. Um, in some cases, in severe, uh, in severe areas of smoke and soot, we just simply dictate that the, the insulation be completely replaced. But there's always a, an issue of that there's a tapering off effect we, either within a mechanic, <clears throat> mechanical system or uh, in mechanical systems that are moving away from the central point of a fire. And in those cases, what we've done is after doing a thorough contact vacuuming and removing as much particulate as we possibly can, uh, we'd either go in and deodorize uh, in, using some method and then encapsulate using one of the coating products that are on the market. Tom, what do you do when the air handler is really heavily contaminated? I mean the insulation. Do you uh, revert back to your... Uh, patented process of you know relining that with aluminum, or do you you know encapsulate it and use some sort of coating sealer on it? If it's very bad, we'll just replace the liner and start over from new. It's faster to do it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, and if and if it's, even if there's metallic components such as the evaporator coil or the blower inside that unit, those will be designated to be removed and clean and, and washed clean. So what essentially happens, now we're talking residentially here, uh, on an air handle in that capacity, <clears throat> pardon me, I got a cold here today, uh, what happens is, is that we would remove the components and remove the insulation and replace it in severe condition. The tricky part is when you actually have a system that may just have taken in some pre-floating soot and how you, you, uh, how you address those issues. And that's somewhat of a judgment call with respect to visual assessments and, and analytical. But the bottom line is, no, we would not use our patented process on that. We would likely use a deodorization process and a coating process on that as well. Tom, let's, let's give you a, 
a short break so you can uh, get yourself a little drink. We're going to go to IE Connections, What's News, if that works for you. And then we're going to come you. back. We have some more technical questions. Sure. Okay, great. Let's go to uh, got the music for IE Connections. Okay, Glenn Fellman, IE Connections, what's news? Hey, Joe. Hey, Cliff. How are you today? Good, man. Great. How are you, Glenn? I'm doing super, and it's great to hear from Tommy Cabellas. He's such a great guest and such a great guy. Nice of you to give him a little break so he can get a drink here. Yeah, it sounds like he uh, he maybe he, he, he breathed in a few too many particles, which is a good segue <laughs> to my first news item today. All right. <laughs> hey, this is a good one. This came out uh, uh, end of February, but we just picked up on it. It's a team of scientists from Denmark and Sweden have discovered that indoor air polluted with tiny particles that we breathe in every day, uh, which get into our bloodstream and affect the performance of blood vessels and potentially increase the risk of cardiovascular disease. This was a test done in elderly people. When the quality of the air was improved using filters, the people's blood vessels worked much better. Uh, this was a study of 21 non-smoking elderly couples between the ages of 60 and 75 who were otherwise uh, relatively healthy. It was randomized, double-blind, all that kind of stuff and it was done in their own homes for 48 hours. They put filters uh, in and then they took filters out and they compared their microvascular function. Uh, during the time when the air was filtered, microvascular function increased 8.1%. Now, if you talk to a, a cardiovascular doctor, they'll tell you that's a pretty big increase in, in, uh, in pressure and uh, in function and that could really equate to a, a major difference in somebody's health and uh, their energy levels. There were a lot of other interesting findings that came out of the report, and we'll be talking about those in our April edition. Some other things that you'll be reading about in April, uh, some news that we picked up over the last couple of weeks attending trade shows. We were at the National Air Duct Cleaners Association conference a couple of weeks ago out in San Diego, where NETCA announced that they are funding a study with a university in Colorado on energy efficiency uh, improvements uh, as a result of cleaning coils and other HVAC components, and that's a $250,000 study that NADCA is funding. Uh, they're putting in a quarter million dollars over two years for that. Um, obviously, the implications are huge for the uh, duct cleaning industry if the results are as positive as people think they'll be. The second big piece of news we had coming out of conventions was from the Restoration Industry Association show which I was at last week and had the pleasure to shake hands and say hello to Cliff out there. But um, it happened uh, during a, a session on rug cleaning with Jeff Jones. At the end of the session, RA distributed a guideline, which uh, if you ask Steven Spivak, the technical director from RIA, he'll tell you it's a, it's a de facto standard. But it is a rug cleaning standard, and it is the first of its kind, and it's a huge leap forward for RIA and its council, so it's something everyone should go check out. Uh, go to Restoration Industry uh, Association, I think it is, .org, and check that one out. Last thing I wanted to talk about, uh, well, actually two more things, is uh, a mold litigation cases. There, uh, there's some interesting things happening there. We're, we're reporting on those in April as well. 
an Ohio couple got $2.2 million in compensatory damages uh, off a mold claim using Ohio's Consumer Practices Act, uh, Consumer Fair Practices Act, excuse me. If you're not aware of what that act says and what it empowers people to do, you're going to love the story in our April issue. On the opposite side of the fence, we have a case in State Farm that was decided, or excuse me, a case, a case in Texas that was uh, decided in favor of State Farm where the insured had uh, put in a $200,000 suit over a mold claim. State Farm said, uh-uh, that's, uh, that's, that's coming off of a, a water damage claim, and, and it's, it's unacceptable. The mold exclusion doesn't require us to pay that. Uh, it went to court. The court upheld it, and uh, that's a significant uh, finding in favor of the insurance industry. So we look at two different kinds of cases there. The last thing I wanted to talk about today was to introduce um, your listeners and our readers to a gentleman named Tom Scarlett. Tom Scarlett took over as the editor of Indoor Environment Connections last week, uh, replaces John Miller, who's moved on to some other things in life. Tom is a graduate of Georgetown and Georgetown Law School. Uh, he spent the last 15 years writing mostly within legal circles and political circles for different publications and different organizations. He's bringing a lot of talent and skill to us, and uh, you're going to see it in our April issue where we reach really deep into some things we've never dealt with before. That's my wrap-up for you guys. Great. All right. Let's, uh, I'd like to get back to Dieter for a moment, our technical director. Hello, Dieter. Dieter, are you still with us? Yes, I certainly am. I'm curious, that first study that uh, Glenn mentioned, does that surprise you at all? Uh, no, it does not. I mean, uh, you've you got to watch this. Uh, I, I like I like the uh, the fact that they used elderly people or you know I, triple quotation mark handicapped people. If you were to do the same study with 19 year old football players, you wouldn't find a thing. Uh-huh. You know, they have so much reverse uh, capacity uh, re- uh, reserve uh, and reverse <laughs> capacity. <laughs> um, uh, you you yeah that that would be the wrong gang to uh, to study. Now, there are a couple of things. Uh, the chronic uh, exposure, which these guys were measuring, and uh, the acute. Now, if you were exposed, and assuming that you have a normal lung, and you were exposed to some aerosols which are deposited in your lung, miraculously, uh, and if you were to smoke one cigarette on top of it, you wouldn't do any damage. On the contrary, you would tell the cleaning mechanism of the lung to work overtime to get rid of that stuff. So you get actually up front, you get a, um, a, a, a an, an increased cleaning mechanism, and uh, that works very, very well. On the other hand, now you can't overwhelm that, which a chronic cigarette smoker does. All of a sudden, it doesn't work anymore because you paralyze all... Uh, the cells that are involved in the cleaning uh, mechanism, and then you see the effect. So, no, I think, I think, as long as we study aerosols in the air which are inhaled into anybody's lung, I don't think we will ever find anything that is really good for you. <laughs> well, that uh, that's certainly some good common sense. Um, let's. Uh, what we'd like to do is go back to Tom, but I just want to mention that uh, Glenn and Dieter and also Pete, if you're out there, we want to bring you guys back in for the roundup in about 15 minutes. That work oh, for I'm you? Oh, I'm going to be here. Okay, great, Glenn. I'll be here, All and right. I just I'll be here. 
All right, we got the watchdog on. I see he's on the line there. We'll bring you in uh, for the roundup, Pete. All right, let's go back to Tom. We got you back, Tom? Here I am. All right. Okay, time for a curveball. <laughs> <laughs> How do you deal with cold air return plenums above suspended ceilings, and do you do anything different with these areas on a fire restoration project? Well, the ceiling plenums or cold air return plenums are somewhat problematic. The original NADCA standard actually didn't address them at all. It's now, it is now incorporated into the standard itself. Uh, but they are a duct, and we have to isolate them and determine what impact they have on the indoor environment. But there is one caveat that we have when we, when we address this, and that is, is that generally the filtration for the mechanical systems, these generally are large commercial systems, the filtration is located in the mechanical room at the point of the where the unit intakes the air. So if the client chooses not to restore the space above the ceiling, which is in fact a duct, uh, we always have to take into consideration that we have filtration located inside the mechanical room that should capture some of the issues. However, but if it's smoke or odor-related, if it's odor-related or soot-related, then it goes into a completely different criteria where more than likely the entire ceiling would have to be remediated. Right. How do you maintain quality and consistency am among these crews on large projects, Tom? That's very difficult to do, without a doubt. Um, I could say my own company works extremely hard at trying to, we, we call it telling on ourselves. <clears throat> this process that we do, we're working on mechanical equipment that was never even considered for cleaning. It's all sealed up, riveted, welded. Everything is, is very difficult to get in, very difficult to reach. So we developed a philosophy in our company that we call telling on ourselves, uh, which means that not only uh, you know, it's not going to be a punishment if something went wrong. We know things are going to go wrong. We're going to miss an area. We're going to have to go back and check on ourselves. But the second part of it is is that um, we're fortunate that we can take full-time people, and their entire job is to do nothing but the quality control, quality inspections, photograph. And now those people report around the normal system directly to the quality control supervisor so that we can get the problems co corrected as quickly as possible. The interesting thing is, is that once the workers know that you're checking, uh, you call them in, and generally we'll set up a little projector in a room uh, with our laptops, and we'll say, look, you guys missed this, you missed that. As soon as you start doing that, that most of the people on our job says, wow, we really are doing this right, and they just self-correct themselves, and a lot of the issues really get limited. Now, that's our company. As far as other companies are concerned, uh, it's an absolute nightmare. Uh, it just, it, it's, most people do not check on themselves. Now, that's, that's a new thing that's emerging in the industry, by the way, right now, where uh, the insurance adjusters and whatnot are spending lots of money to restore these systems, and they want assurances that they're gonna be, it's going to be done right. I guess I have, that leads me to two questions. I guess number one, would you look to a trade school, you know, would you go to a trade school that taught, you know, HVAC, you know, installation and, and repair? Would that be a good place to get skilled labor to do the cleaning work? No. 
uh, there's such a demand. It, it could be, but there is such a high demand for HVAC technicians coming out of the trade schools that both anyone, any one of the people that are coming through that are valuable are already scooped up early on by the companies that need service technicians. Uh, the restoration business is very different than the servicing business or the maintenance business. And so uh, we do, we're a lot more fortunate in that capacity because we can uh, bring up people in our, through our training programs pretty quickly and get them on board. You know, on a project like the Monte Carlo that you did, did you have to estimate and give a firm number up front, or do you do a not to exceed, or did you do time and material on that project? In, uh, in this particular project, we uh, we did give uh, a, a price based on the total production hours we thought it would take. Mm -hmm. And so we have a team of people on, on any commercial project that we do. We have a team of people and a very sophisticated computer program that calculates. We inventory in the building, essentially. All the mechanical system components get inventoried into the computer, and we have a large database of movement rates on how long those things will take, which generates the number of man hours. Tom, I'm, I'm curious, um, on some of these projects, I assume you do bring in some subcontractors. Uh, they're probably, you know, you can't get 200 guys as quick as you would like. How would somebody get your attention if they wanted to be one of those subcontractors? Well, generally, this is a regional issue. What happens is we go to a region, and it is rare that we do this, but because we have so many offices now, we really do draw from primarily our own network. But in, in a, there, there have been a few times where we'll use outside contractors, and the answer to this one is simple. The very first thing is they're going to have to be <clears throat> a member of the at least NADCA, ACA, uh, RIA. They're going to have to be a, a known member in the key organizations out there so that we can verify their background work. And then we're going to go through the process of checking their insurances, their background information, looking at past projects that they've done. It's a fairly elaborate process when we're associating with someone else. Okay, Tom, that's good. Now, let me, we're, we're just trying to coordinate a little here on when we go to the roundup. I think we'll go to the roundup at about 1250 for the guys out there waiting. And when we do, I'd like to start with uh, Glenn, I believe, to discuss a little about the IAQA's upcoming conference. And, and what I'd like to do now, Tom, is, you know, we had a couple questions about your volunteer activities. You have uh, <laughs> suffered from this <laughs> rare disease called, uh, what is it, volunteerism extremists. And uh, I understand that you are the highest scoring uh, volunteers, volunteerism extremist. <laughs> Uh, on the on the uh, on the charts, how long have I you been? Know, I don't know about that anymore, but I do volunteer quite a bit. My my uh, philosophy on volunteering is simple, and and I heard a long time ago someone says, when you volunteer your time for the common good of either people or the industry, time will be made for you to do everything else. And I I've just found that to be true in my life. Well, what? During your volunteer time, I know that you've had some both satisfying and also some frustrating periods. Can you tell us a little bit about each? Well, you know, I mean, that's, that's the whole thing about volunteering is, is that, uh, you know, you don't always get your way. You, you, try to, you, put your, you try to do the best you can for the industry, especially with industry volunteer activities. I do other volunteer activities at home, but in industry volunteer activities, 
you know, your one voice, you're trying to bring a concept forth. Maybe people don't always necessarily buy into it. It can be frustrating at times. Um, you know, you're, you're not running the show. You don't own the company like you would own your own deal. But ultimately, you know, I believe that the good of everybody is more important than the good of the one. Um, and, and you know, it can, it can be uh, my, my, th my thing is I think that when things get tough, it teaches persistence. But the, I think one of the most rewarding things that I, I really have ever been involved in is the growth of the Indoor Air Quality Association. I mean, we, you know, there was, it was just a very small organization of 68 people uh, when we were really became actively involved, and now we have 4,500 people uh, in the organization. And it's, it's not even the fact of the growth of the people or the financial or the money. What it comes down to, it, there's a real purpose for this organization to exchange information, very much like what your show does. You know, the, the open exchange of honest information and trying to help improve buildings out there. That's, that's you know, what we're trying to do. You know, one of the things that, that you talked about is this persistence. But what happens if you work for an organization and you never, ever, ever get your way, regardless of how good the suggestion is? Is it time to leave? Well, <laughs> <laughs> he's not referring to me, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that one. I, I, there has never been a time that I've never, ever gotten my way. Okay. So, okay. Let's just tell them to do a little self-analysis on that one. All All right. Right. Your I, figure. I think you have to actually go for personal counseling. <laughs> okay. Oh, Tom, that's great. Hey, now, you are currently serving as, uh, I, I'm calling it the caretaker president for the Indoor Air Quality Association. Uh, you well, it's more like the transitionary president. The caretaker is oh. indicating something's died. Uh, <laughs> okay. IHUA is doing is is very alive. Um, and what what what's happening is is that we went through a process uh, where we went through the unification process. Uh, that was a challenge. Um, and now things have settled out substantially, and I cycled back through to help get some of the strategic, original strategic plans before the unification process actually, you know, took most of the time, the three years of Bob Baker's tenure. Uh, just, I cycled back in just to get some of the original programs back on track and to kind of get a cohesive movement on the organizations. So I'll be cycling out um, in July, I think it is, uh, we have an annual meeting, uh, a shortened annual meeting in July, and then, as you know, we're teaming up with uh, ACA, which is the Air Conditioning Contractors Association, uh, and we're going to be putting our trade shows together uh, for our next annual meeting. So this, this next annual meeting that we're having in July uh, is an intermediary meeting until we get to this larger trade show, which is next year in 2009. What's the most important goal you have during this nine-month term right now? Uh, probably to stabilize the relationships with the organizations and to assure that we keep moving forward uh, and offer other organizations the ability to become involved and not look uh, myopic in our viewpoint. We don't, we don't want to look at all like we're on an island. We, we want to be able to be working cooperatively with everybody. Okay, Tom. Now let's. I I know that we were working on a couple of other things as well, but I'm curious. Um, you had done some 
volunteer work with the, uh, you know, we've mentioned ACA a few times, and, and you've done a lot with NADCA in the past. They seem to have two different uh, philosophies on the standard writing, I guess. Um, we've got one that's a, I'm trying to find my notes on this, a procedural standard, I guess. The ACA standard is more of a procedural standard, and the NADCA is more of a performance-based standard. Oh, boy, they got me. Uh, the Air Conditioning Contractors. And it is Air Conditioning Contractors Association, right? Right. All right, what, what's the difference between a procedural and a performance-based standard, and can you give us an illustration from the standards themselves that help to, you know, paint yeah, a better picture? I mean, I'll give you this, a simple explanation. Let's say we're restoring a mechanical unit, um, and the... Uh, the procedure, the performance standard says a surface must be this clean when it's done. Um, that means that the contractor can use any procedure that they deem necessary to get to that point. Um, and so the, the steps that are taking them to this point may not be as important uh, in the first standard when it's a procedural standard, a, 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 excuse me, a performance standard. A procedural standard says to, to perform to the standard itself, we want to see you remove the blower, remove the blower wheel from the, the motor, then clean everything out, then put it all back together again. And one of the reasons for that is obvious, is that when quality control, when so much is riding on the reputation of the restorer to bring these systems back that, is, that are affecting people's health, um, it's not just good enough to look at the surfaces that we can see, but to know that the procedure was actually done in a step-by-step -step format and that we can confirm that those steps were followed. In, in so doing, that actually helps, especially on the residential side, consumers understand that they should expect to see certain steps done, and if they don't, then they need to address that with their contractor. All right. Well, let's go to the roundup here, Tom. This is when we bring everybody back and uh, ask a few questions of you and each other. back with the roundup. I want to start with Glenn because I think we've got to make a slight correction on the conference. And, uh, we do. <laughs> okay. Then we're going to Pete and uh, Dieter, and then Cliff and I will wrap it up. <laughs> Go for it, Glenn. All right. Actually, we've got two corrections to make. Uh, ACA is the Air Conditioning Contractors of America, not uh, association. So uh, not that, that makes me like the chief of the acronym police. <laughs> the sheriff is in the town. sheriff's man. in town. All right. <laughs> June 12th through the 14th in Tampa, Florida is when IAQA is holding its off-time mid-year meeting. This is the transitional meeting that gets us from October to February, and once we're in February 09, we're staying in February. But uh, we're at the Tampa uh, Embassy Suites and Convention Center next door. We've got a great program, and some of the things that have been going on in the last couple of months are really exciting because they've built into what we're doing. It's, it's very, very topical. IAQA has been spending a tremendous amount of time, uh, really since last fall, 
working with medical organizations, attending their conferences, getting into the faces of the people who uh, treat uh, those with chronic allergies and asthma to find out what can the IAQ practitioner do to help in the equation uh, of helping people's health problems. We've come to find out that there are protocols for doing screenings uh, of people's homes that allergists and similar doctors uh, would like to have, and they don't have anyone out there to do it. So we're going to be talking about how to do these allergen screenings through some, um, through some longer workshops than you might typically see with our conference. We're also going to have a, um, a lot of focus on some facility maintenance issues with the recent green building trend and the ASHRAE 180 standard and the ACA standard. There's a lot of focus going on on maintenance of facilities. The great thing here is that the Florida Intercounty IAQ Council, which is a group of public uh, employees who work in facilities management, they have foregone their April open house this year in lieu of sending their people to our convention in Tampa. Likewise, the five chapters of IAQA in Florida, uh, which are Tampa, Miami, uh, Tallahassee, uh, Treasure, uh, uh, Treasure Coast, and Fort Lauderdale, they've all uh, likewise thrown their support behind our annual meeting in lieu of having a statewide meeting, which they've done the last two years uh, very successfully. So it's, it's rounding out to be a really good event, uh, very much of an interdisciplinary uh, focus like we always have with our convention. And it's a lot of competition, a lot of great places to be in June this year. Uh, and if, so if you're not going to be going to the beach, this is the place to be because you can come to our convention, sneak out for an hour and go to the beach. We'll let you do that too. All right. Thanks. Well, thanks. So, for the... Glenn, this is Tom Yacobello, so that probably means you don't want everyone showing up in July then, right? <laughs> well, that would be good. That would be good. Well, I like want to do another. Although I think, I, I believe several of our chapters will have July uh, workshops. So if you want to go to Florida in July, we will have IAQ events there. We'll entertain you. Absolutely. We will entertain I had a question you. I wanted to throw out to Tom if I can hold the floor for another Go second. for it. It's one that uh, I get all the time, Tom, and I know you get it too, so why not throw it out on the radio? What do you say to a contractor who says, Which, all right, I, I got this uh, ACCA standard here, I've got this NADCA standard here. Which one should I follow? What's, what's the advice you give me? Well, uh, the, ACA stand, the advice that I would say is, is that the ACA standard is developed as an ANSI standard. And the ANSI standard is a specific level of peer review that's been followed, and it is a performance standard. And generally, my advice would be is, would, do you have a residence or do you have a commercial application? With respect to the residence, I would say probably use the ACA standard because it's a procedural standard, and you can hold the contractor's feet to the fire to a greater degree. Right. Okay. But when Thanks. it comes to when when it comes to commercial, I I like the clearance criteria and the NACA standard, so I think there's room for both of them. Cool. Let's bring Thanks. let's bring the watchdog in. Pete, are you still with us? Yeah, I'm still here. <laughs> Good. To, perk us perk us up a little, Pete. What do you got? You got anything well, for no, us? I, you know, I I I just been uh, I learned some stuff, you know, listening to Tom talk a little bit about his background and whatnot, which actually I, I didn't know, and I actually just uh, enjoyed listening to, uh, you know, to the interview. Uh, surprisingly enough, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to send anybody into shock. I'm, I'm not so sure I have a heck of a lot that I could add. It was, uh, I thought it was a, a good interview, and uh, you know, listen to Glenn give the updates on IQA, and uh, welcome aboard to the uh, to the new editor of uh, IE Connections. Other than that. Uh, 
that, that that's it. I mean, you guys are just doing a great job, so keep it up. Well, thanks, well, Pete. And we, Thank we look you. forward to uh, next week's show, too, when we'll have you back. And we're having our 75th show, and uh, the commission will be back to help us out with that. Absolutely. Whistle in hand, maybe. All uh, right. Let's I, go to Dr. Uh, Dr. Go, Dieter. Go ahead. Yes, I'm here. Dieter, any questions or comments? Well, uh, no, not not uh, really. I, I uh, maybe I have a question. I do remember that, like maybe two, three years ago, there was talk inside the IAQA that um, they wanted to sponsor uh, somebody or an institution or whatever uh, on how to clean uh, air ducts. And I think specifically the coils, which of course are, you know, the, the major area where something can go wrong. Did that ever get off, uh, or did it, was it finished? I I am not aware of anything that happened. I don't know if Tom or Glenn, either one of you, can jump in on that. Glenn, I was going to let you answer that. <laughs> okay, well I will then. <laughs> was it a bad question? In fact. Uh, doctor, it did happen. Uh, the, I see. The standard, the NADCA standard, was revised with some with new language that that broke the coil cleaning into two categories called Type One and Type Two coil cleaning. Type One coil cleaning is in areas of the country that have very little particulate or very dry particulate and allow dry cleaning methods, which are described in the standard. Uh -huh. Type Two ends up becoming a chemical cleaning process or a wet cleaning process to remove biocontaminants from a coil, and it divides them separately. The ACA standard handles it the same way. It divides the two things into the two different levels. we got one in the queue here. Let's see if we can bring the Machine King on. Machine King, do you have a question for Tom? I don't you just stop. Uh, uh, oh, we lost that. I don't know what exactly that was, but... Uh... We'll mute that, and we'll go on the cliff here. Okay, Tom, I got a question for you. Have you had to deal with, or uh, l l let me rephrase it. Is there a successful solution for salvaging HVAC systems in a clandestine drug lab, you know, where they're making meth or something like that? I have not put enough time on that. I've been asked a number of times to take a look at that, and uh, I just could not answer that question. No problem. I really, I really couldn't. Thank not with the not with the contaminants that are involved with meth. Yeah, thanks uh, for your honesty, because I didn't know the answer either. Tom, my, my question is, uh, it goes back to your, your franchising success. I know there's a lot of people that would like to have been as, as successful as you in the, in the franchising business. Can you give us a, a little tip or a secret to how you've been so successful? I think the key is to develop standard operating procedures and stick to them. I mean, uh, for many years, you know, we, we ran a very tight ship in our organization and, and worked internally with just, you know, limited staff to produce a lot of different things for the organization, not just volunteer-wise, but we've written computer programs and systems. And my, my only recommendation I would give people is, is to try to just document what you're doing and try to eliminate redundancy through standard operating procedures. Document everything. Tom, I've got one more that I, I've been asked, asked about quite a bit. I'd like to get your opinion on the value of these UV lights in HVAC systems. Can you give us just a quick opinion on their value and are they being oversold? Um, you know, 
<laughs> I don't think I want to answer that question. <laughs> okay. Um, the, I have not, we have not even created an internal policy yet uh, for our own company. They definitely have some value, and it's, you know, right in between. And we've also heard, we've heard some very positive things, but we've also heard some negative things as well which we're concerned about deeply. So I'm right in the middle of that. Well, let me take another slant on it. How much more difficult do they make your job cleaning the system if they are in place? Uh, they are not at all. Okay. I mean, they're, they're just another a sensitive component that we have to clean around. I see. I see. And I'm assuming also that with the changes in HVAC systems, you know, the greening of the industry and more controls, more higher sear uh, equipment, et cetera. Is that making your job a little tougher? It is. Actually, it's making it greater for us in the industry. Now that the higher sear equipment is coming out, we find that it, in many cases that it's growing biologicals much quicker and at a higher rate than the old mechanical systems. And so th that means you know, that we're needed even more to restore these mechanical units. It also means the level of filtration coupled with these units must, at minimum, you must have high-level filtration when you put these systems in. You I know, think Cliff had one more. Yeah, just one more to kind of build on that. Are you seeing any positives in terms of systems being made uh, that are easier to clean, that you know, they're designing these things with cleaning in mind? Do you see any improvement in that with the engineering? Yes, yes. There, we definitely, there is a a whole group of mechanical units commercially out there that are completely cleanable units from day one, the IAQ units. And many of the manufacturers of residential two to five ton air handlers have gone to uh, a more, a better product on the inside uh, insulation and, and have been thinking more about the way these systems are going to have to be cleaned. But we have a very long way to go still. I guess one final comment uh, for our listeners. Joe and I authored an article in the spring issue, uh, the 2008 Restoration and Remediation magazine called For Whom the Bell Tolls on Decontamination from Pigeon Contamination. Uh, there's a link to that article on our website. Uh, we put a lot of time into it, and we hope you enjoy and learn from it. All right. Well, this is Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guests, Tom Yacobellis. I also want to thank the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Always a pleasure, Joe. The Wingman, Chris Boisel. Our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. And, of course, Glenn Fellman and Pete Consigli for joining us today. Also want to make sure that we thank our most important group of loyal listeners. And before we go, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. DryEase Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. DryEase is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, or restoration and abatement contractor shop at jondon.com. This is Radio Joe signing off for this week's edition of IAQ Radio. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the 75th broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 